Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your disease. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. He is compassionate. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He abounds in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us nor keep his anger forever. He's not dealt with us according to our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. Now, our Father, we come this morning into your holy presence, thanking you that in Christ Jesus you have credited us with a righteousness that we don't deserve, but a righteousness that allows us to approach you in the Spirit through your Son. We are grateful for the way you've answered our prayers in this past week, the hundreds of children that you brought and the opportunity to plant seeds in their little hearts and to harvest other seeds as they have come into the kingdom. Be with each and every child and with each and every parent and be with us this morning as we open your word. Your word is truth. Thank you that Jesus said the truth would set us free. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you said we're to be sanctified, set apart in the truth. And may that ministry be true today. Spirit, thank you that you inspired each and every word. And we pray for your teaching and illuminating ministry this morning. Help me, fill me, anoint me, use me. That together we might lift up Christ and that men might be drawn to him. We ask it in Jesus' holy name, amen. I want to invite you this morning, take your Bibles, 1 Timothy chapter 2. I hope you bring a Bible to church. Maybe you don't own one. You should come to meet the pastor. We will gift you with one. 1 Timothy 2, it's easy to find if you're new to the Bible. All the books that begin with the letter T are found together in the New Testament. They go from long to short, Thessalonians first and second, longer than the word Timothy, first and second, longer than the word Titus. Right after, go everywhere preaching Christ, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So if you can find one of those books, you can find any of those nine books. Now, with that said, I have just completed a a series entitled God's Prophetic Schedule. We spent 31 weeks on it, and we went through God's future program as it relates to the church, to Israel, and even into eternity future. But right now, before we begin a new book of the Bible, Uh, Many of you have asked me a number of questions that I want to answer here in the days ahead, and I've been burdened to address some critical issues, and one of those issues concerns the role of men and women in ministry. We have just seen recently in the largest Protestant evangelical denomination called the Southern Baptist Convention, all this contention, all this division amongst what should happen. Thank God they stood strong. With that said, this is one of the hottest and most contested issues today that is splitting churches. Rick Warren, why anyone would ever want to listen to him, he wrote a disastrous book, The Purpose Driven Life and The Purpose Driven Church, and now he is going to inform the body of Christ that he has seen something that he never saw for four decades, that we should ordain women as he has recently done. You turn on the television, you go to some internet site. You go on a Christian cruise or you visit some church and there's a woman teaching and exercising authority over a man as a pastor or maybe in some mixed group. And in the last few years, evangelical denominations and churches who once saw it differently all of a sudden are being enlightened. And they're seeing something that no one else has seen in nearly 2,000 years of church history. For nearly six decades, the church stood strong against feminism, the last bastion of declaring the roles of men and women in the church have been defended by the church, but now we are acquiescing. And there are a number of mega churches we've discussed, not only Saddleback, but Willow Creek, uh, Lake Point Church, Elevation Church, Passion City, to name a few. And then you have all these famous women preachers, Ann Graham Lotz and uh, Paula White, and Beth Moore and Joyce Meyer, and I could name a host of others who are in direct disobedience to what the Scripture says. One woman sharing her frustration with the fact that her denomination said she can't be a pastor said this, and I quote, 
God called me to be a pastor, and the men in my denomination refused to recognize this. So I guess I'm going to have to find another denomination. Well, before we're done, I hope you will realize that no woman has ever been called by God to be a pastor. For that matter, no woman has ever been called by God to teach in a mixed setting because God's Word never contradicts His will. His will always syncs with His Word. And when we reject what God says, whether it's in the home or in the church, it brings trouble, it brings disaster, and it brings heartache. Now, uh, let me just say, if you're a thinking person, you need to ask, why is it that for nearly 2,000 years, the body of Christ saw it one way, and all of a sudden, we are being enlightened to see it a different way? So I want you to pay close attention. If this is your first time here, this is the third in this series of messages. If you go to searchthescriptures.org, you can download the first two messages. Now, for the benefit of those who are new, but for the rest of us who would, I think, benefit from some review, I'm going to read the entire passage that we've been studying. 1 Timothy 2, beginning now in verse 8. Follow along. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands, without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. This is a day in which we need to be theologically alert. Church history is littered with Bible-believing institutions and organizations and seminaries and colleges that departed from the plain truth of Scripture. Before long, if you acquiesce in one area, you will acquiesce in others, and now most of those institutions are dead, and yes, apostate organizations. It's a slippery slope. And I know people are having new insights into the Bible on some of these, you know, countercultural issues. What I always find interesting is no one ever has a new insight on something that's not popular by the world. They always have a new insight when the world is rejecting the Bible and they want to come alongside and agree with the world. And so they have fallen many of these institutions and local churches into doctrinal and theological error. Paul tells us plainly in 1 Timothy 3 and in verse 15, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God which is the church of the living God. The local church is the pillar and support of the truth. That's what God's word says. And so Timothy, he pastors a church in Ephesus. It was once a great church. But as the years went by, some doctrinal tears began to enter in. And the problem that he relates to this morning concerns women. It concerns role reversal. Some of the women were... Uh, usurping the role that God had uniquely given to the men. And so in verses 9 through 15, he corrects this matter of this high and holy role that he has given to women because he wants women to compliment men and not to compete with men. And so if you've been with us, I've underscored four elements that spell out the design that women are to play in the church. It's a very comprehensive treatment here concerning the role of women in the local assembly. Four elements... First concerns their appearance, then their submission, then their design, and then fourthly, their contribution. So let's briefly review. I, again, have a few hours of preaching on this, but I'll just hit a few of the highlights. First, a woman's adornment, Roman numeral one there. Some of the women, by the way they dressed, were denying what they said they were coming to do. They said they were coming to the local assembly on the Lord's day to worship the living God but it sure didn't appear like it. Some of them were dressed immodestly, and so women are to adorn themselves in modest apparel. He says here in verse 9, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. 
It's possible to be dressed modestly but not discreetly. And when someone is not dressed discreetly, they are there to call attention to themselves. And again, we are here to point ourselves to Jesus and to point others to Jesus and not to call attention to ourselves. And so he speaks of the fact that women are to adorn themselves in discreet apparel. They are to adorn themselves in discreet apparel. But he's not content to leave it there. Third, Paul moves from the outside realm to the inside realm. And we saw that this is one of the great not-buts in Scripture. If you weren't here, go back, listen to it. He's not prohibiting a woman braiding her hair or wearing gold or jewelry any more than Peter is prohibiting a woman from wearing a dress. But he's saying it's not only this, but it is also to be this. And so he moves from the outside to the inside, and that a woman is to adorn herself in godly character, in godly character, point C there on your outline. And so we read now in verse 10, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women to make a, making a claim to godliness. Then last week, we moved to a woman's adornment, from a woman's adornment to a woman's submission. So starting in verse 11, he moves from those who were dressing indecently, either with a lack of modesty or discretion, to those who were improperly leading in the church. Remember how he opens this section in verse 8 when he first dealt with the men. Therefore, I want the men. And then in verse 9, the verb is shared, and it often is in Greek, but you'll notice it's italicized. Therefore, I want women. We saw this verb, I want, bulamai, is not the want of a wish, but it's the want of a command. This is what I will for the women, for the men to do. In other words, this is not simply a nice thing. This is a necessary thing. And he spells out the command plainly in verse 12. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Again, this is not something he just wishes or hopes. This is something that he is commanding the church to practice. And we looked at the whole of Scripture concerning a woman's submission. We saw first that the whole of Scripture, Old and New Testament alike, teach that a woman is not inferior that though she submits does not mean she's inferior any more than in the Godhead within the Trinity. There's submission within the Trinity. The Father is called the head of the Son in 1 Corinthians 11, but any sound biblical doctrine of Christology would affirm the equality of the Father and the Son. And even the Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. And so, The Scripture affirms the co-equalness of women to men, but just because they are equal does not mean they share the same roles. And so we first studied the Old Testament, and we saw a number of blessings that men and women alike share. All of the spiritual blessings that are given to men are given equally to women as well because they are equal in the Lord. But we also saw that while they share the same spiritual blessings, they don't share the same spiritual roles. And so when you think about leadership in the, in the Old Testament, there's not a single king, whether when the kingdom is united under the first three or when it's divided, the northern kingdom Israel, the southern kingdom Judah, 20 kings in the north, 20 in the south, and there's not a single king who is a woman, not one. There are no women priests in the Old Testament, not one. There's no women who wrote a single book of the Old Testament. Of the 39 books in the Old Testament, though two bear the name of a woman, Ruth and Esther, they were written by men. That's not by accident. There's no women in the entire Old Testament who have any kind of an ongoing prophetic ministry. There's none, none of the major, none of the minor prophets, a a term that we've used in the fourth century to describe the amount of material that each of those groups wrote. None of them are women. Those like Elijah and Elisha who have this ongoing ministry, though there's no book written after them, not one was a woman. Now, some Christians will be quick to point out that there are five prophetesses in the Old Testament And they say that this is the biblical justification for a woman being a pastor today. And so we looked in great detail at those five particular women, as this slide illustrates. First, we looked at Miriam, 
who prophesied to a group of women in song after they defeated Pharaoh at the Red Sea. Then we saw Huldah and Deborah, who in each case spoke a word of direct revelation to a single man. Then the fourth woman that we looked at was Noadiah in the book of Nehemiah, but we quickly dismissed her because she is dubbed as a false prophetess there in Nehemiah. And then fifth and finally, we looked at the unnamed wife of Isaiah. We don't know her name, but she gives birth to a baby boy, and God gives her the name to call that boy, and the name of the boy is prophetic in nature. And so from the illustration found in Isaiah, we can see that the word prophetess can be used in a very general way. But there's no ongoing prophetic ministry of a woman anywhere in the Old Testament. But even if there were, as we'll see in a moment, the Old Covenant must be interpreted in light of the New Covenant. Your Bible's divided Old Diatheke, New Diatheke, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant. The old must be translated in light of the new. Otherwise, we might have polygamists in the church today. Or we might have people who are marrying near relatives, something that God prohibits. And so, again, Scripture is clear that the word can be used in a number of ways, from a single line of prophecy to a woman who leads a group of women. Then we stepped into the New Testament. We saw that all of the spiritual blessings, as Ephesians 1 underscores, that men share... Women share, without exception. But again, that does not mean that they have the same roles. For example, there's not one single woman pastor in the whole New Testament, not one. There are no elders, pastors, evangelists in the New Testament, not one. There's no apostles in the New Testament who are women, not one. There's not a single sermon, though a number of sermons are recorded in the New Testament by men, there's not a single sermon given by a woman, not one. There's not a single New Testament book that's written by a woman. Again, all 66 books of the Bible were written by men. But then we noted, well, someone will come along and say, well, what about the four virgin daughters of Philip who were prophetesses? We read in Acts 21 and in verse 9, now this man, Philip, had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. And we noted that actually, you, though you can translate a participle as a noun, it's actually a verbal. And so both the King James and the ESV said that they had four who did prophesy. That is, they spoke a word of prophecy. We're not told how, whether they did it individually or in unison, or they did it once or a dozen times. But we did study that the New Testament parallel would be a woman reading a verse of Scripture in church. Remember, the early church for nearly a decade did not have a single book of the New Testament yet written. So when they gathered on the Lord's Day, they studied Scripture, the Old Testament, the, the Tanakh. Jesus said, Moses wrote about me. Why? Because he's the hero of the Old Testament. Abraham saw my day and believed. The scriptures speak of me, Jesus said. Then, of course, they had the apostles' teaching that they would gather for and they would learn from. But eventually, the New Testament was written, but when they needed direct revelation because they couldn't refer to Ephesians or Galatians or Revelation, what did God do? He gave direct revelation through various men and through various women. And so a woman is not inferior Secondly, we also learned that the woman who is submissive learns. So a woman who is submissive is not inferior, but she also learns. And so again in verse 11, we read, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. The ESV and the King James render it something like this. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. So one says receive instruction, the other says learn. They're both correct. It's the Greek verb, monthanteo. We get a, a noun, most of you know, mathetes, which is the New Testament word for a disciple. And so a disciple at its core is someone who is a learner. And Paul is saying something that's extremely radical, that a woman must learn. Because women were not viewed in a high way in the, in the first century or the centuries before. 
at least by unbelievers. But the Old Testament affirmed that men and women alike, as they walk in the way, as they rise up, as they have opportunity, they teach the children the Scriptures, and women in the New Testament church are to learn as well. They are to be learners. Now, I know when he says they are to receive instruction or to learn, that may be a little bit of a shock to the senses in our day because people come to churches all the time and they say, I don't get anything out of it. The pastor doesn't teach me anything. And they leave starving. And so there's an assumption, even the command, that a pastor is opening up the scripture. But he is affirming here that women are not second class citizens. They must receive or learn with entire submissiveness. The verse plainly says she is to learn. And how can she be used of God in the ministry that God is going to highlight to other women and to children if she doesn't know what the Scripture says? She can't any more than men can't effectively disciple. Now, I know the word discipleship obviously is not found in the New Testament. And for about 60 or 70 years, the word has been grossly abused. And someone says, well, I'm doing discipleship. I'm making disciples. If I have a Bible study or whatever, actually go make disciples. You find the five instances in the New Testament where the Great Commission is given. His point is go make converts. And I don't care who you may be teaching, how many Bible studies you may be leading. If you're not involved during the week in attempting to bring people into the kingdom, then you're not making disciples. Make converts of all nations, every ethnicity baptizing them. That's the first act of obedience. Teaching them, that's discipleship. Teaching them the whole counsel of God, everything Jesus said and everything that Jesus promised he would say through those who would be inspired after him. And so a woman must receive instruction with entire submissiveness. A woman who is submissive is not inferior. A woman who is submissive learns. Third, we underscored, a woman who is submissive learns quietly. She learns quietly. Again, in verse 11, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Now, what do you do with um, those women pastors who say, well, you know, what Paul, Paul didn't mean what he said. No, Paul meant what he said. He meant what he said. They, God said what he meant. He meant what he said. What are the, how do they get around this verse? It's very simple. They do it in one of two ways. The liberal says, well, Paul was some woman hater. And so he just, you know, suppressed women because he had a problem with women. No, he didn't. He is writing clearly what God says. And then others will say, well, this is just something that was unique to the first century, like foot washing, like head coverings. Now, we're going to see before we're done this morning, that is hermeneutically impossible when you study the context to say that this is culturally mandated and refined only to that era. Listen, a woman, he has said in 1 Corinthians 11, we looked at it last week, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 5, is to pray and prophesy in church. That means she is speaking in church. The whole assembly is commanded to sing to God and to one another. That's a command of Scripture we are to obey when we gather on the Lord's day. Now, we didn't have time to get to it last time, but let me read to you 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35. There he said, women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law, the Old Testament also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Wait a minute, Paul, you just said in chapter 11, they are to pray and prophesy in church. You commanded the Ephesians that every believer, when we come, we're to sing in church. Are you contradicting yourself? Of course not. This contextually is a qualified silence. And as we'll see this morning, when Paul says here in verse 12, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. It's a qualified silence. I do not allow a woman to teach. That's her silence nor exercise authority, that's her submissiveness. And so the quietness, like in 1 Corinthians 14, is qualified by the context. Contextually, what he means by the quietness of a woman is she's not to take the role of a teacher in a mixed assembly, that God has given that authority 
to a man. And again, Paul does not mean that she can't sing a song. She's commanded to. He doesn't say she can't pray. She's commanded to. Though he gave the order of prayer in the gathered assembly. We studied that three weeks ago. Doesn't mean she can't have a direct revelation. God gave many a women a direct revelation. Nor does it mean she can't share a testimony on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2 and verse 11, what did they do? They came out in women and men alike gave testimony of the mighty acts and deeds of God. But that is very different from a woman opening the scripture, explaining its meaning and giving application to the church. That role men are to take. Now women say, well, why do men get all the good stuff What role can women play? I'm going to tell you now. So I hope you've been patient with me for two weeks. Now we want to break some new ground as we look at a woman's design, a woman's design. Look, if you will, now at verse 12 as we dig down a little bit further. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now, each word in this verse is critically important. Take, for instance, this word, allow. If you do a word study, you find out that this is what theologues call a hapax legomena. That is, it is a word used only once in all the New Testament. And it literally means to do something that you really want to do. And when you study it in other realms, when it's used in the Greek Old Testament, remember most Jews spoke Greek in the first century. The Old Testament was also translated from Hebrew into Greek. And when you look at its common usage in Koine Greek, first century Greek, it refers to desiring something that you really want to do. And so by his choice of words, Paul in essence is saying, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority, even though they really want to do that. Now the problem in Paul's day is the problem in our day. That is to teach and exercise authority over a man. And the problem goes all the way back to the fall. Listen to these words. You might want to jot out in the margin, Genesis 3 and verse 16. Put out next to verse 12, Genesis 3, 16. According to that verse, the desire to usurp the man's leadership role is a product of the fall. Listen to what God said to Eve in Genesis 3, 16. To the woman, he said... I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. In the day of painless deliveries never came. The human race is reminded of the sin and sorrow that the fall has brought. And Paul now wants to underscore, as we'll see in a moment, that one of a woman's greatest fulfillments is to have a baby. But when you have a baby, there's still pain, even with a C-section. My daughter, as we speak this hour, is in full labor. I can't wait to hold that little baby boy. But listen, she is in labor, and she's in the midst of pain. And so he goes on to say, yet your desire shall be for your husband. And again, this has nothing to do, as the Christian feminists have said, that this is a reference to a sexual desire. Some, listen, sex is not a punishment. It is a gift from God. In fact, it was commanded ever before man fell. They were to multiply, and God gave some built-in motivations for men and women to procreate. But God's original design for Eve was not to usurp her husband's leadership role. In fact, he says here, your desire will be for your husband. And then it adds, and he will rule over you. Now that's another sermon, but the tendency of a man is to dominate and to, tyrant, to be a tyrant over his wife. A woman's tendency is to want to usurp his authority, and a man's tendency is to lead in a way where he's a dictator. And I have a whole message on that if you want to listen to it. And which is why, ladies, young ladies, if you're single, you want to marry a Christ-centered, spirit-filled man. Because 
you will have a very different kind of home if you do that. And so increasingly in the church, you can have a woman who's discontent with what God has called her to do, and she will seek to usurp the man's leadership through a teaching and authority role. And Paul is simply saying, I do not allow them to take this role in the church, even though this may be their desire. And so when the body of Christ is gathered, I don't care if it's on a cruise or at some conference or some kind of a training gathering of men and women alike or in an adult Bible fellowship or a Sunday school class of men and women, we're talking about adults alike. And by the way, if a a man or a woman is old enough to defend their country, they're considered an adult and wisdom would dictate at what point do you kind of draw a line? When do you draw a line where you say, listen, we want to prepare these young men, these young women to understand God's role? And so when do you draw the line in the mixed audience where a woman, say, could teach boys and girls? And wisdom would dictate that. And again, you already know what our policies are here. In either case, certainly by the time they're in high school, As we prepare to launch them off into manhood, we make that division. And we actually make the division in middle school. Why? Why do we have women teaching kids in middle school and men alike? Well, for number one, they're often distracted, the boys and the girls together, and and, uh, you get a lot more accomplished. But again, we're, we're moving towards a transitional time in life. Now, again, here in verse 5, a woman is not to teach or exercise authority over the man. You see those words, exercise authority over? It's a single word in the Greek New Testament. And it's usage commonly outside the uh, New Testament without a single exception is to usurp or exercise authority in an area in which you are not called to exercise authority. Now, how do the Christian feminists get around this? This is what they say. They say, Paul is saying, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise abusive authority over a man. In other words, if a woman is teaching in a mixed audience, but in an abusive way, then she is in violation of Scripture. Look, there's no examples anywhere in the New Testament. There's no examples anywhere outside of the New Testament where it means that. They just made that up. And some of these people who quote the Greek or the Hebrew know absolutely nothing of what they're speaking of. But again, don't be intimidated by Greek or Hebrew scholars or pastors. And I prepare in the original every single week, and it requires a lot more time and effort But don't be intimidated because there's nothing you typically cannot see in English that is not brought out through other passages. So again, putting verses 11 and 12 together, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. So her silence is the silence of not being the teacher, and her submissiveness is not be taking that authority as a teacher. Understand the role of a pastor teacher, the role of someone with the gift of teaching. It's an authoritative position. In the New Testament era, you called a teacher rabbi. It was an authoritative, well-esteemed position. Even in the New Testament, in places like Acts 13, it's the teacher's who lay hands on Paul and Barnabas when the church in Antioch see God has called us to support Paul and Barnabas. They are our missionaries. And so when a man stood up and he opened the scripture, he was to preach with authority. Why? Because the Bible is the authoritative word of God. And listen, I know there are women who say, well, I'm here today, and they'll make some qualifying statement. I'm here today at your pastor's wish, and I am under his authority. Nothing could be further from the truth. No pastor, this one included, has authority to give a woman authority of something that God expressly says no to. By the way, in the case of Priscilla, Acts 18.16, you should jot that verse down, or Acts 18.26, Uh, Paul does not break the rule, but people use the issue of Aquila and Priscilla who took alongside Apollos, 
who needed to be straightened out. Remember Apollos, he was mighty in the Scriptures, meaning mighty in the Old Testament. He spoke with a sense of authority, but his message was incomplete. He had heard John the Baptist preach. He knew what the Old Testament Scriptures said. He knew John had come on the scene, and John said, get ready, the Messiah is coming. I'm here as his forerunner to prepare the way of the Lord. And then he goes back to Corinth, and he doesn't realize that Messiah has now come. And so Aquila and Priscilla hear him preaching mightily. And of course, with these knowledge gaps, we're told they took him aside, notice, and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now again, some make the jump to 1 Timothy 2.12, and they say, well, that means Priscilla was being a pastor. Look, don't, don't slander this godly woman. Maybe they came into their home. We're not given the exact context of where they were. And maybe Priscilla shared her testimony and said, you know, Paulus, I was once like you. I've been looking for the Messiah. I even heard John preach. Let me tell you my testimony. And no doubt Aquila opened up the scroll and taught that Jesus had fulfilled what he had been promising. And so you can't make this jump. Now, can a woman woman teach? Absolutely. Who is she to teach? Other women and children. Jot down next to verse 12, Titus 2, 3 through 5. Titus 2, 3 through 5. Let me read this passage of Scripture, and let me remind the men, there are some things in the church that only men can do, and there are some things in the church that only women can do. Listen to what he says. Older women, likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. There it is, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage, which is, again, something that's done verbally, that they may encourage who? The young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. Why? so that the word of God will not be dishonored. So Paul told Titus that the older women are to teach the younger women. When you meet a pastor who's leading some Bible study of all women, or discipling some woman one-on-one, he is in clear violation of Scripture. And because we've ignored this piece of counsel, there have been many a scandal in the church. But to teach men was to exercise authority over them. Because when one preaches, he preaches with authority. And women were not to do that over men, but they were to do that with women. People ask me sometimes, could a woman have the gift of teaching? Of course. Could a woman have the gift of pastor teacher? Yes, she can. Ephesians 4 is not speaking of the offices. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. That word and at the end of that uh, line of uh, nouns is a different word and. And so it has the idea of pastor slash teacher. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastor slash teachers. Now, there's a gift of pastoring. There's a gift of teaching. Ideally, someone who fills the office, who is earning his living through the teaching of the Word, because not all elders are called to teach. All are called to rule, as he'll underscore in in his first letter. Nonetheless, ideally, you have someone who is a pastor, teacher, gifted in that way to fill the point office. Elders are equal in terms of their leadership of the church, but as Revelation 2 and 3 teaches, there's a point man, there's a leader amongst equals. And so a woman can have the gift of shepherding, the gift of teaching, the gift of pastor teaching. It's not an issue of gifts. There's nothing in the New Testament that teaches, well, God gives this gift only to men and this gift only to women. No, he gives them equally, but it's the place in which those gifts are to be exercised. And so women need to be teaching women, and women need to be teaching children. He just said to teach the young women how to, among other things, love their husbands and love their children to be workers at home. We just had a vacation Bible school, and hundreds of children, we had to meet in two assemblies, they all won't fit into one. Hundreds of children, and who took the leadership? Largely women. 
And that's rightly how it should happen. Some men took vacation time, some were retired and gave a direct investment in the kingdom. But most of the men had to be at work. But of course, do you know that most vacation Bible schools in America now take place at night? Do you know why they take place at night? Because all the women are working during the day. They're in violation of Scripture. Most pastors can't even preach on these texts. Why? Because their wives are working. Many times because they want a fatter salary. When in essence, if it's a startup work, then they should have a tent-making ministry. They don't send their wife out to work. Years ago, we had a missionary about 20 years ago who uh, sent the church a letter, and we met in the elders' meeting, and uh, she said, we need some extra support because we want to hire a full-time nanny so that I can be out and ministering with my husband and, and, and teaching out there in the field. God hadn't called her to do that. God called her first and primary to take care of those four children she had. Not to, you know, yes, women can be missionaries and we need missionaries. There is a need for missionaries in the first century church. But Paul didn't say, hey, look, we got a lack of, you know, male leadership here and we, we, we just let the women do it. No, you beseech the Lord of the harvest for laborers to do it. And then, of course, I know there are women who are single their whole life, and you shouldn't try to marry off some women that God has called to be single. You know, she's been single for 10 years. We need to find a mate for her. Maybe God has gifted her to be single her whole life. And that's a high calling. And then there are, of course, those women and couples that are unable to have babies. But in either case, in either scenario, those women are viewed as mothers. I saw one of our dear members teaching over here in this corner last week, and she's been single her whole life. But those children saw her as a mother because God has put into a woman a mothering instinct to influence and to impact children. But, you know, you have these women who, who travel the country today, and Someone else raised their children, and people come back from their conferences and say, I want to be like Beth Moore. No, you don't. You don't want to be like her. She lived in disobedience for three decades, and you don't want your kids to turn out like her kids turned out. Listen, there's a high cost when you ignore what God's word plainly says. Think your way through this. And then you have these women who are teachers, and they teach just like men do. The style of their teaching is not really women's ministry. It's not that you are restricted to Titus 2. You can teach the whole of Scripture, but you teach it through the lens of Titus chapter 2. So we've jettisoned God's role, and again, pastors can't teach it, their wives work, or they got some daycare center that they've opened up. Why do they open up these daycare centers? Well, we can bring in another 20 grand a month. What have they done? They have set a model, they have set a precedent that is okay to ignore what God's word plainly says. Seek the Lord of the harvest. Someone wrote me again just in the last two weeks. There's no one who will step up to the plate, who will teach our ABF and the church they were in, and maybe I should take it. I said, you should not. Kick those men in the pants and give them a, give them a, a kick in the backside to step up and to be men and not wimps. Beseech the Lord of the harvest. So when he speaks of a woman's design, first notice her design is illustrated from creation. Her design is illustrated from creation. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. Now some people take the prohibition of 1 Timothy 2.12 and they say, well, Paul is just a crusty old bachelor who is against women. Those of us who hold to the inspiration and infallibility of Scripture would never come to that conclusion. Still others, they say, well, this is culturally mandated like foot washing or a head covering. And again, that's an impossible position to take for it was... Adam, who was first created, and then Eve. The chronological order of creation proves 
that this is not culturally bound. God didn't create Adam and Eve at the same time out of the dust of the ground. He created Adam first and then Eve for a reason. Hold your finger here and turn back to the book of Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. I want you to go there. Genesis 2. In the Hebrew Bible, it's called Barashit. The first uh, five books in the Hebrew Bible are named after the first verses in those five books. Remember, the titles are not inspired any more than the chapter and verse divisions are. And so the first book is Barashit. The first word in the Bible is Barashit. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It means in the beginning. We take our English title from the Septuagint, the Greek translation, genosios, which means beginnings. Genesis 2, look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, by the way, you'll notice, let me just say parenthetically, Lord is all capitalized, right? And it's small letter G, small letter O, small letter G. Sometimes it will be Capital G-O-D, which again would be Yahweh. Here it's capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh Adonai. He uses the covenant name of God and the name that speaks of God's incredible power and might. Actually, Yahweh um, Elohim. And so he says, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone, but I will make a helper suitable, an azir. You could translate it, a, a, a helper fitting the man, a compliment to the man. And that's what Eve was to Adam. She complimented her man. She fulfilled him. We need our women to be complete if God has called us to be married. And so here is this man, Adam, and God shows him how alone he is. How does he do that? He has him name the animals, and God just sovereignly brings them two by two by two. I know sometimes Adam is pictured as some knuckle-dragging caveman. Nothing could be further from the truth. He has to come up with a name for every animal, and the name stuck. In fact, I would suggest to you that people were a lot more intelligent, intelligent before the fall than they are after the fall. And so he says, there's Mr. Hog, there's Mrs. Hog, there's Mr. Horse, there's Mrs. Horse. After a while, he realizes there's no one that compliments me. So what does God do? He's terribly alone. Surgery, verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. Now, eventually, the anesthetic wears off, and uh, Adam has something to say. Notice what he says in verse 22. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And so Eve's just a couple minutes old. And the man said, now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now, I know that doesn't sound very romantic. It sounds more like a statement from an anatomy professor, but it's very beautiful in the Hebrew text. The Living Bible paraphrases it. Adam exclaimed, this is it. Fantastic. She's just like me. She's 100% human, just like me, with a few refinements and a few improvements. She, too, is fully human. She compliments me. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha. It's a play on words. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of Ish, man. This was God's initial statement affirming the equality of men and women alike. Our first parents were fully equal to one another. And nowhere, anywhere in Scripture does it teach anything differently. And I might add, we looked at last time 1 Corinthians 11 in verse 5, uh, where uh, we now find the balancing truth. Let me just read it to you. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9, for indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Now, if you know the context, he's talking about how the father is the head of Christ, and Christ is the head of the man, and the man is the head of the woman. Even within the Godhead, there is submission. And if your Christology is sound, you recognize that Christ and the father are equal, and yet the son submits to the father. And so he then says, he makes this very important statement, the man does not originate from woman, but women for men, for man. 
And then in verse 11, however, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. So on the one hand, the woman is made out of man. On the other hand, the man is born out of the woman. And listen, before long, the Jewish people had a testimony that was unique because every culture on the face of the earth denied the equality of men and women except the Jewish people. Why? Because it had been given to them by the word of God as penned through Moses that men and women are equal. But again, their equality does not mean they have the same roles. And so back here in 1 Timothy 2, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Notice the very first word of the next verse, for. It's causal in the Greek, and so some translations render it because. In other words, he's now giving the reason. Because it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And so a woman is not to exercise authority over a man because Adam was first created and then Eve. He's giving the reason. God did not make Eve the leader. He made Adam the leader. And so the first reason that removes the thought that this is somehow isolated to some cultural expression is the order of creation. The second reason he gives concerns the fall. Her design is illustrated not just from creation, but her downfall is illustrated from the fall. And so we read now in verse 14, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So the second argument has to do with Eve's fall into sin. Now, it sounds a little bit like a put-down, but it is not. Please understand, the Bible nowhere teaches that a woman is mentally, physically, or or morally, I should say. We, We are made differently physically, but a woman is not mentally, morally, or spiritually inferior to a man. God is not saying, oh, shame, shame, shame on you, Eve. Look what you did. Actually, as 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3 affirms, Adam was not deceived like Eve. Adam sinned with his eyes wide open. He knew exactly what he was doing. And so when Eve steps out, she leaves the protective umbrella. Adam should have stepped in and said, hey, Eve, I'll deal with this issue. I'll deal with Mr. Devil. But he doesn't. He's apathetic, he steps back, he lets her take the leadership role, and because she stepped out of the role that God had given her, she was deceived. And I'll show you in a second, when a woman does that, she opens herself up to deception. And by the way, when a man does that, if there's some authority that God has put you under, and you step out of that authority, you too open yourself up to deception. But of course, here he's dealing with the woman. And so reason number one, he again is rooting this submission and this uh, prohibition not to teach or exercise authority over man over two historical, theological, orthodox truths. The first concerns the order of creation. The second Uh, concerns how man fell. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now, having dealt with a woman's adornment, the woman's submission, uh, and a woman's desire, he concludes with a woman's contribution. Let's think for just a few minutes about a woman's contribution. First there in your outline, a woman's contribution is seen in her children. It's seen in her children. Now we come to verse 15, the favorite verse of Planned Parenthood and the National Organization of Women. (laughs) But women, notice it's italicized because it's not in the Greek text, but it's implied contextually. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue. Now the English standard renders it a little bit differently. The ESV says, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue. Now, this word preserved in the NAS, in the King James and the ESV saved, is the Greek verb sozo. It means to save. So what does he mean in this context? Um, The word sozo, by the way, can refer to someone who is physically delivered from some danger. 
And many times in the Old Testament, even in Hebrew and throughout the Old Testament, uh, Greek translation, when the verb sozo is used, it talks about Israel being saved from some danger. I don't think that that's what's involved here. I would certainly say that nowhere else in any of his letters does Paul ever use it that way, not to say that this couldn't have been an exception, but those who take it that way think that this is some promise to a godly woman who will be saved from physical disaster when she has a child. Well, the problem with that, obviously, is that there are many godly women who have died in childbirths over the century, even to modern day times, with all of our medical adaptations. Some think, well, the preservation or the salvation will be of the soul, that when a woman has a baby, she's either promised a place in heaven, or she is promised a higher place in heaven, like in Mormonism. The cults typically do this, and again, Scripture interpreting Scripture, you could never come to that conclusion because God has gifted some women to be single their whole life. So obviously having a baby doesn't save anyone. It doesn't give you more planets in the future life like in the wackoness of Mormonism. No, it is uh, not referring to that because the Scripture affirms the substitutionary death and resurrection of Christ apart from any works saves. Third, some think, well, this refers to Eve, that since she is the matriarch, that all women will be born from her, she's the mother of the whole human race, that she brings salvation, and that because she starts having children, that one of those children far enough down the line will be the Messiah. But Paul is not speaking of one woman here. He is speaking here, if you notice the balancing truth with the plural pronoun, if they, if they continue in faith and love. I know the word she is in the ESV, but it's being used generically. All women can have a part in whatever this is. So I don't think this is in reference to Eve. No, I think the context means that this person will be saved or delivered or preserved to another kind of deliverance. Let's read verse 14 again. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children. Paul is speaking about women in general. He is saying that they, namely women, are saved through childbearing. That is, think about this for a second. If all the men, if men had babies, obviously we don't, though there's some people who are trying to convince you that a man can have a baby. It's just utter insaneness what's happening in our culture. But if a man had, could have a baby, and if men had all the babies, then the only thing a woman would be left with would be the stigma of the fall. But she's saved, she's delivered, she's preserved through the bearing of children. How so? Because when she has a baby, she is able to shape that child. She is able to raise that child to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ, to be able to give the great plan of salvation. And so mothers have a special bond. They're there, or at least they're supposed to be there, with their children throughout the day. And they shape the children like no one else can shape them, which leads me directly into my second point. A woman's contribution is seen in her godly children, in her godly children. Let me read now all of verse 15. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity and self-restraint. So Paul is saying that while women help lead the race into sin, they're not left with that stigma because they can raise a godly seed. And again, I recognize some are called to singleness, some are left barren their whole life, but the general principle does not change the general rule. Motherhood is a high and holy calling if it's conditional here, if they continue in love and sanctity and self-restraint. In other words, if a mother does what God has called her to do, she's able to raise a godly heritage like no one else is able to influence them. And so that's why he's already said in verses 9 and 10, don't be just concerned with the outside, though you should be concerned. Be concerned with 
the inside kind of adornment so that you are the kind of person who can shape that little boy or that little girl. Now, there are many applications we could make. Let me underscore three. Number one, never underestimate the powerful harm of role reversal. Don't ever underestimate the powerful role of role reversal. A woman is not to exercise authority over a man by teaching in a mixed setting or becoming a pastor of a church. And when you ignore that created order, then you are fostering young girls to be manized and young boys to be feminized. You think it is by accident that in these mainline denominations that have rejected God's clear order, that they are now teaching homosexuality is okay. Let me give you a partial list. It's too long for me to cover it all. But for instance, the Presbyterian Church USA declared in 1955 that women can be pastors. Now they totally affirm gay marriage, and we have two such churches in our town that perform those. The Evangelical Lutheran Church in America in 1970 said women can be pastors. And now they approve of homosexual marriage. The UCC, United Church of Christ, endorsed women pastors in 1975. Now they approve of gay marriage. The Episcopal Church USA declared that women could be pastors in 1978. Now they approve of homosexual marriage. The Christian Church and Disciples of Christ since 2002 have had approximately 25% of their churches pastored by women, and now they are approving of homosexual marriage. The Moravian Church says that women can be pastors. They, too, approve of homosexual marriages. The Quaker Church says women can be pastors. They, too, approve of homosexual marriages. And on and on the list goes. And you have your evangelical churches. So a number of years back, take Anley Stanley's church. He started having women on his staff who are pastors. Now that Charles is dead, they've let it go free, and they are baptizing not only unrepentant homosexuals, but as recently as three weeks weeks ago, an unrepentant transgender person. Role reversals always lead to disaster. Don't think that Rick Warren and the Stephen Furtick's and the Lou Giglio's are doing us a favor. They are opening the church up to apostasy, And by the way, look down in your text at the next chapter. Remember, the chapter and verse divisions are artificial. He goes on to give the qualifications for an elder. And he uses all these male pronouns, he this, he that. If you can tell me how a woman can be the husband of one wife, I can tell you how she can be an elder, a pastor, a bishop, a presbyter, all used interchangeably in the New Testament. You show me any church with strong female leadership... And again, I will show you boys who are being feminized and little girls who are being manized. You don't want your kids in that kind of church. And if you're listening to me somewhere online and you got that setting, you should find another church next Sunday. Oh, but it doesn't seem to be influencing anyone in that way yet, Pastor. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows that, he shall reap. You may take that little tomato seed and put it in the dirt. And seemingly nothing happens for a while. And then a little sprout, and then a plant, and that one little seed produces a multiplicity of tomatoes. It just takes time to see the fruit. Don't ever underestimate role reversal. I don't care if it's in your home or in the church. Secondly, never underestimate the powerful influence of a godly mother. Don't ever underestimate the influence of a godly mother. You know, ladies, in most cases, men are the product of the mother and her influence. In the physical realm, all of us as men, of course, originated from women, but I'm speaking here of character development. I think of Timothy, whose whose mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois taught him the scriptures. I mean, Paul came along and 
he shared that Jesus fulfilled the scriptures, and in that sense, he can call Timothy his son in the faith. But Timothy responded the way he did because of his mother and his grandmother. In fact, they responded with Timothy. Don't ever underestimate the role you play. When I went into the ministry, I was taught that the highest call a man could ever have would be to become a pastor of a church. And I really believe that. I believe that it was a higher call than being the president of the United States. But I have since changed my position. I think the highest call is being a mother or a grandmother because those individuals have such a unique impact on little children. But you see, the world will say, go out and get a career. Do something that's really important. And some of you have daughters headed off to college or into graduate programs, and that's fantastic. But make sure that they know that if God blesses them to be married, and then God blesses them to have children, it is a high and holy call to stay home with those children. And it is a high and holy call to teach women and children in the church. Oh, that's so old-fashioned. Do what the world does, and you'll get what they get. Some of you can't unscramble eggs. I get it. You walk down that road, you blew it royally. You ignored the Scripture, or you're ignorant of the Scripture. Ask God to forgive you, and at least teach the next generation what's right. We have a need for churches to put women on the sacred pedestal that God has placed them on, to say that your assignment in the home and in the church is a high and holy calling, and you need to embrace it. Third and finally, never underestimate the powerful change new life in Christ can bring. The world is rejecting God's standards in terms of how he has made men and women and so men and women are suppressing the truth. We're seeing the quintessential expression of this rebellion in our day like never before. And let me just say, if, if you're listening to me and you're gay, if that's the term you want to use or whatever term in that long list of alphabet you can come up with, God can forgive you. But you can't be forgiven as an adulterer, as a fornicator, as a drunkard, as a lesbian, as a homosexual, as a transgender person, as a self-centered, self-ruling person, if you don't see that there's a sin problem. Call your sin what God calls it, and he will forgive you if you put your faith where God put your sin on Christ. Father, thank you that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away, and everything has become new. I pray today, my Father, for someone listening within the sound of my voice, and maybe they modeled the opposite of what your word teaches they should have modeled to their children, and they can't undo that right now. I know, Father, many come here, and they come and find Christ here, and they are deeply entrenched financially and otherwise and the world's values, but thank you that you give them a starting place and things can change with time. Help those who need to make those changes to make it. Help someone in simple childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, save me. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We'll sing a hymn of invitation. And if you're here this morning, you have a decision to make to join this church to confess Christ through baptism, to join as a believer who's been saved and baptized. If you're unashamed of him, I want to invite you to leave and to meet me here in the front. Would you come now as we sing this hymn?